This is The Rest is PR with Lyle Fulton and Jackie Balls. Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to The Rest is PR. My name, as it will always be, barring any incident at all, is Lyle Fulton. And I'm joined, as I'm sure, I know for a fact, I always will be, by the absolutely brilliant Jackie Balls. Jackie, again, Thursdays. We're back again. I'm loving that our home is Thursdays. It's kind of just towards the end of the week, which means that, you know, sort of the weekend's on the horizon. You know, a lot of the week and the productivity of earlier in the week is behind us. Our eagle-eyed, and I'm going to say viewers, because I've said listeners before, I made a mistake. Our eagle-eyed viewers will notice that behind me is the remnants of the decorations for my lovely wife, Alice's birthday, which was last week. So I am full of beans this week because we've had a lovely few days, my wife and I. How are you this fine Thursday afternoon? I'm great. I don't have any... Decor- well, I do have decoration, so eagle-eyed viewers can see. I don't know if you can see the neon. There uh, we go. The neon sign is up. I recognise that as well. <laughs> I recognise that. That was actually, that was one of the things, I'll be honest, I know it's like very first thing I noticed when I walked into the room. I was like, that is epic. I love it when couples do. And for our <laughs> listeners, what Jackie has just showed our viewers is this brilliant neon sign, Jackie yeah. and James, which was you know, front and centre at the wedding a few weeks back. I love that. That's brilliant. And was that always the plan? Did you always plan to have that in the in the office or no? You know what? I ordered it so far in advance. I think it's probably one of the first things I ordered. <laughs> um, and then I forgot about it. And then, yeah, so there was no plan for it. It's just sort of landed right in my room, which is, is really nice. But it's really nice also because the weather's coming in now. It's getting darker. It's getting colder. So I've been very preoccupied by my fish this week. <laughs> <laughs> the fish in my pond expand Hearing... on this please but, okay, expand so I on have, this. i have seven fish and they do all have names and for, three of them are great big koi carp and then we've got four goldfish so the koi because... How is it I've known you for two years and this is the first I'm hearing? Two and a half years now almost. <laughs> and it's the first I'm hearing that you have seven fish, three of which wouldn't be seen out of place, pun intended. I have have two goldfish in the house, but I have have seven fish down in the garden. And um, the sort of the three koi carp are Ghost, Princess and Kiko. Right. And then um, the the four goldfish are named by Arlo and they're called Unos, Dos, Tres and Pedro. (laughs) 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 <laughs> well, that is very good so, that is great by fish at the moment because i've had to clean out the pond <laughs> clean out the filters, work out what their winter feed is because they don't fish sure. those are aficionados fish don't eat a lot in the winter hmm. not at all so <clears throat> when i'm trying to toy when when i start feeding them the winter food or do i keep feeding them the summer food because the, the the temperature is so discombobulating at the moment because it's October and it's 24 degrees and the fish are discompopulated. They're like, we're still eating and we're really fat now. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough one. Anyway, I don't know why I'm talking about that on the podcast. but No, that is- I'm loving it. I mean, I personally love, and it's one of those where I knew where it was going almost, but I couldn't quite fathom exactly where it was going with those four fish that Arlo had named. <laughs> but I was like, you're never going to get Quattro as a fish. Like Uno, Dos, Tres and Pedro is comedy... <laughs> gold it's like pure <laughs> solid gold comedy i absolutely love it um and i can just imagine him naming him. yeah like you know dos tres and 
Yeah, Pedro. Yeah. The interesting thing is, if you saw it, it's not interesting at all. The inane <laughs> thing is that if you saw the fish, Uno and Dos look exactly the same. They're white and they've got a big orange spot on their heads. So you can sort of say Uno and Dos is like one and two, two dots. And then Trez, <laughs> Trez has got white lips and Pedro is all orange. <laughs> Pedro's the showman. Pedro is the showman of the four. Pedro's the, the one that's properly coloured goldfish. <laughs> Speaking of showman. Yeah. A segue is just getting, honestly, the segue is getting so You know fluid. what? Reason, the real reason I talked about fish was to, to really take you off your segue game. <laughs> My segue game. And you have not <laughs> succeeded because I've somehow managed to find you a way. Fished. You fished a segue out. We are full of puns and I'm loving it. We're full of puns this Thursday afternoon. But speaking of showmen, but I will let you kind of finish this segue and complete the segue. Because speaking of showmen, <laughs> what we're going to be discussing about this week, listeners, on the podcast is actually something which one of our listeners has recommended we discuss as a subject yeah. for this week's episode. Would you like to fill That's our listeners in on what that request was? Sanam. Shout out to Sanam, because I know you were, I said to you I would do this subject and you said, really? And I said, yes, definitely. It's a great idea. And it is because we we were actually talking about the Netflix documentary with David Beckham. And Sanam mm. is um, also a PR professional. I'm sure she listens to the, the podcast just to be, be able to sort of steer me in the right way rather than get anything out of the podcast. <laughs> but anyway, um, we were talking about the Netflix um, documentary and we were talking about of David Beckham, and uh, which is amazing. So it's a, it's a must watch in my view. And we were talking about how the media has changed over the years. And she said, I wish you would do a podcast about that. And Brilliant. she said, see if you can do anything to segue into Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. She she listened to the ones we've done about those those two. So I said, OK, I'll talk to Lyle. And here we are. We have actually talked about it. Well, you're in the right place as well, listeners. And Sanam, thank you so much for that request. It was an absolutely brilliant request, one that I'm so pleased you gave to us because I love David Beckham. Unsurprisingly, I love David Beckham. He was growing up, he was one of my idols, even though I was dreadful at football growing up. And many would argue I'm still not brilliant, but I'm better than I was. I grew up just in adoration of this man, you know, what he could do with the football. Is that why you're a Man United fan? It's up there. I mean, a big reason I'm a Man United fan is my uncle, my uncle Adrian. Shout out to my uncle Adrian, who um who's uh my mum's side of the family so he's from Irish side of the family and has always been a big Manchester United fan so it was like one of those kind of races to the finish when it came to when I was born my dad had a Southampton kit my uncle had a Man United kit and he just went back there you go but also it's just like as I started getting into football was when and I hold my hands up listeners anyone who follows football you know Man United glory supporting days apologies oh, I hold my hands up glory days weren't they but they were that it almost maybe even though I love the documentary, it made me upset watching Manchester United when David Beckham played because we used to be so good and we're <laughs> you know really mediocre now if we're being honest. But no, it was one of the first football matches I watched on telly when I started getting into it and started really you know falling in love with the game that Man United were playing. It was on Sky, and I just remember thinking, oh wow, you know the red kits, David Beckham, Ryan Giggs. Ryan Giggs obviously having had his own problems recently, but you know Ryan Giggs, Paul Scholes, David Beckham, you know Cole and York up front, Peter Schmeichel in goal, the Neville brothers. It was just like this iconic. Obviously Roy Keane, how can I forget Roy Keane? And I absolutely you know adored it. But David Beckham for me was the one who. He, for me, and it's arguable, and we're going to get onto this, obviously, it's arguable, it's not even for me, it's arguable that for the world, he was the first global 
footballing megastar if we're being really honest oh, no and I, Hello, surely the, what so but, but hear me out in in the modern guys now i'm gonna say it's like in the modern guys pele obviously and i no disrespect on pele's name because i think he is the best ever the best of all time just in terms of his goal record you could argue Lionel Messi's a fantastic player, Cristiano Ronaldo. Maradona. Maradona, of course. But this documentary, and we're going to get into the documentary, really does paint this picture of a football player, a male football phenomenal. player, who transcended literally every popular culture platform. You know, he was a footballer, first and foremost, and a brilliant one at that, like winning football matches, winning trophies, winning, you know, personal and team awards by the bucket load. He was one of the first footballers. I think he may have been the first footballer here in the UK. He was the first to be a brand ambassador. I think he was the first to be spotted by brands as somebody that they wanted to represent their brand. I think he was the first footballer to do it. And almost the first, you'd argue, to kind of not just embrace, because he he really did embrace it, and that's as shown in the documentary, but also to embody a footballer as a celebrity model. Because yeah. Pele and Maradona were global megastars because they were absolutely brilliant football players, but that's what they embodied. That are, you, they... are you are you insinuating that they weren't? No, <laughs> no, they were. And I'm sorry, David. They were far better football players than you, David. You were a fantastic footballer, but Pele and Maradona were a cut above the rest. But for me, Pele and Maradona, and Pele's. I think Pele, you know, the rest of him. Pele even went on record as saying that for him, like he wanted his thing to to be the football. And obviously then he went on to kind of be an ambassador for Brazilian football and went out and played in New York, similar to David Beckham going out and playing in America, obviously all this sort of stuff. But Pele and Maradona, it was it was the football stuff. Maradona then went and did some TV because he obviously left World Cups in disgrace and stuff. But you're so right in what you say. Beckham was like this brand, wasn't he? He became this brand. He was super driven by wanting something after football mm. something outside of football and I think it was just sort of like the perfect storm of this in, insane talent insane hard work even more insane good looks and charm and then the Spice Girls which were the biggest thing ever for a while as a pop band it just all it was like the perfect storm all of this coming together to propel him onto another stage while he was still practicing his trade his main trade of being a footballer Mm. but when you look back on that documentary I think what really shone through to me was he was such a young kid Mm. you know he'd been with Manchester United since he was like 15 was it or 12 it was yeah 15 he first spotted at 12 wasn't he and then signed at 15 but he grew up in this sort of gilded cage really and he was such a young person to have such responsibility on his shoulders and go through all of that stuff I mean I've got a stepson who's 22 and what Beckham had achieved by the time he was 22 was phenomenal yeah extraordinary was he 21 when he went through all of that I think he was I think he was 23 when he had his first born which was and what amazed me and again we don't want to spoil anything for the listeners who haven't yet gone and watched the documentary as Jackie says by the way though whether you're a football fan or not go and watch this documentary because it is like unmissable in my opinion and my wife Alice who really isn't into football at all small tangent she pretended she was for about a year while we were started going out because she thought you know oh that's nice like something I can kind of like you know sort of go along with him too or whatever and watch with 
ever since we've like kind of been committed and obviously we're now married she's like no i actually hate football and i've always hated football. but there you go that's that is what it is but she watched it and she was like you don't need to be into football to to enjoy this podcast but to enjoy this documentary rather because he's just been such a you know a huge celebrity a huge personality but yeah i think without wanting to spoil anything the sort of specifics i even i as an avid manchester united fan didn't know that he received news that victoria as she is now victoria beckham victoria adams as she was back then because i think it was just before they got married um posh spice to many people um she had revealed to him that she was pregnant the night before the world cup quarterfinal against argentina the world cup quarterfinal which was you know the moment of madness in some people's eyes that led to something we're going to get right into actually which was then the media treatment of david beckham Ooh. and whether or not this would happen now whether or not this is happening now in a different way how people are re reacting and responding to similar treatment to what david beckham experienced are they experiencing it a different way are they reacting in a different way but yeah i mean you're so right in what you say that's a really good place to start 23 23 years old really and as an older person than you with with a good 20 years between us I remember when all this happened, you know, I was watching the match when it happened. And I remember that sinking feeling when he came off and the expectations of the nation had been whipped up into a frenzy by the media. So everybody was watching, everybody all over the country was, you know, this was a big event in the country as a, as a nationwide event. And then when he lashed out and kicked somebody to get sent off, it was honestly like a Greek tragedy. And the interesting thing was, I don't think any of us, I think we were, everybody as a nation was really oh, depressed, you know, de depressed and down about it. But I think it was that whipping up of vitriol that it, it started actually in the commentary afterwards and it started particularly with the England boss Glenn Hoddle who literally threw him under a bus and basically said that we'd lost that match or we'd lost our chances of winning the World Cup because of that one man and that led to the Red Tops loving this lascivious kind of like, oh, oh, lovely story for us and the Red Tops for those of you who are out of the England zone um, red tops are our tabloid press. We call them the red tops because they all had red banners across the top of the newspapers. And they just literally went crazy. And mm. um, they, they jumped on this. And the next thing you know, he's getting death threats. His his children are, are being threatened with kidnap. I mean, it was just really... Oh, you know, oh no, no. The, the, was, was it kidnaps? I can't remember. Well, so his firstborn was born, I think six or seven months after, after the event, the event. Um, this yeah this vitriol carried on didn't it yeah he had an effigy of him hung outside a pub uh not long after we exited the world cup he arrived home from the world cup with the rest of the squad but then he was escorted out individually by huge security presence where he met his mum and dad and there were people shouting abuse at him even in the airport the tabloids Beckham even says himself in an interview in the documentary, retrospectively, obviously speaking quite recently, he says, one tabloid journalist asks, how, did it, how does it feel to be the man who let his country down? As he was getting into a car to go and see his mum and dad. 
and he's 23 years old. So I, there are so many things that I object to with that question. Letting his country down. I mean, he, he got sent off in a football match that meant a huge amount to a lot of fans, you know, myself, I mean, I was five at the time, myself included, you know, football does mean a lot to football fans, but it's not letting his country down full stop. He let his footballing country down at that moment in that specific tournament. I also query, how does it feel to be the man who let his country down? I mean, this guy was a boy. He was 23 years old. And you can question the relative analysis of, well, how mature are some of these footballers as well? Because let's be honest, let's call a spade a spade. His education took place. His most important education as a young boy took place in the guise of being a Manchester United youth player. So yes, he was getting an education. He was being schooled up in Manchester when he moved up to Manchester to become a Manchester United Academy player. But his main education was playing football. We've discussed in previous episodes of the podcast how maybe the lack of education in the football environment leads to some of the poor behaviour, some of the, you know, so we've just, we've discussed the relative merits of, of that argument. But the treatment he then got lasted, he went and announced the birth of his child. Brooklyn, I believe, was his firstborn, his firstborn boy, Brooklyn. And he went and announced the birth of him. And there was still abuse being held at him from outside the hospital. I mean, we're talking this lasted three years. He was going to grounds and he was being booed by every set of fans, including Man United fans, banners, you know, absolutely vitriol and that's the the only word for it was extraordinary and it's led to as you rightly point out comparisons between how he was treated when he was 23 years old in the late 90s and how certain footballers and other personalities are treated now and whether or not they react differently but they respond differently and things like that the thing is that the media then was all powerful Mm. we didn't have the internet as we know it now Mm. We, we didn't have you know the kind of communication vehicles that we have now we didn't there was no such thing as a blogger there was no such thing as social media it just was it wasn't in existence and so and and tv stations were very limited you know we got hundreds of tv stations now we had maybe five mm. you know it was everything was was controlled by the media public appetite for things or public judgment of things was was very tightly controlled by the media And the interesting thing is, would that happen today? Would that happen now? Or has it happened, but in a different way? And so I started, I got to thinking about this. And certainly the media is not as powerful in terms of swaying people's judgment about things. But we do have that thing called social media. We do have the Twitter sphere or the X sphere, whatever Elon wants us to call it at the moment. <laughs> uh, we do have the we do have TV and we do have newspapers, but they seem to have sort of died down in in their yeah. kind of influence. And we have these things called influencers, yeah, people who use their platforms to recruit people to their their tribes and and everything else. And it's the the only the, the, there was one comparison I could have with football, and that was when we missed the penalties. The three England players missed the penalties in the was it a Euros. World Cup? Just Euros. Euros. Euros? Yeah, against Euros. Italy. Against Italy. That's right. It was the Euro final. It was. Yeah, it was in. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. 2020. What do you It was a delayed one. It might have been a bit before then. 2021. Yeah, 2021. It was a delayed one. Uh, Anyway, they missed they missed three players, missed penalties, and they got a lot of abuse on social media. But again, 
on social media, there was a lot of support mm. and there was a lot more balance in reaction to that trolling that they got or trolling, mm. whichever way you, you do it. Mm. But this is the interesting thing. When it was David Beckham and he was being held up by the media as this evil, awful person, he didn't have a platform to, to talk back yeah. on. His supporters didn't have a platform to talk back on. There was nobody, there was no balance then. And I know we spend a lot of time criticising social media, but nowadays there is a bit more uh, of an opportunity yeah. to present the other side. And then when I was last night, when I was thinking about this podcast, um, I glanced across okay, I'm, I'm going to admit something. I love trash TV. And I was just looking at Married at First Sight on the Channel 4 thing. I was thinking, oh, I shouldn't really watch it, but I'm going to. And then I saw the Amber Heard versus Depp documentary, and I thought, no, I'm going to have a look at that. And that was a real interesting study in social media as well, the, the Johnny Depp versus the Amber Heard. Big time. Yeah, but at least, I mean, he had more supporters, and there was a yeah. big... There was a big question mark over whether, because of all that support, he his he he won the the verdict in the trial. And then there was all the debates about bots and and um, and whether he was using bots to inflate his following and la la la. But but the bottom line is, at least with social media, there is an opportunity to present a differing view immediately, very yeah. quickly. There is a platform for everybody. But with David Beckham. He had nothing. The only choice he had was the choice he took. Well, there are there are two choices, okay. and, we're, and we're and we're very thankful that he didn't take. And you know, you don't want to. You've got to be sensitive to this. There were two choices. We're always glad that the other choice. I'm not even going to mention the other choice, right? Because actually, he's retrospectively said that he was in an extremely dark place. He did go he, through a dark place. Yeah, didn't he? he was a really he was in a really dark place, and he was feeling very emotionally down. Victoria says in the documentary that he was, you know, probably clinically depressed. Uh, just wasn't the same person. Some of the Man United pros, ex-Man United pros who um, played with him uh, in the 90s and early 2000s commented on how he always used to look a million dollars whenever he turned up to training. Like he literally, even though he was just going into training, he would turn up in the suits, in the flash sports cars, in the flash clothing with the sunglasses and the, you know, the really expensive baseball caps and what have you, you know, fashion at the time. Around this period of time, these two years, he was turning up looking really gaunt, looking really pale, look, just looking like he wasn't really looking after himself. And then he went on the football pitch and he worked. He went and did it. And not only did he do it and just turn up and make up the numbers, he was winning games on his own. He was winning football matches on his own. He was being his brilliant best. He was being brilliantly David Beckham, scoring free kicks left, right and centre, setting up goals. And it was almost as if, and he says it in the documentary, and obviously they kind of not in a bad way, but I believe the director, I can't remember his name, the director is also the same director Fisher. who, yeah, Fisher directed the Amy Winehouse documentary. And it's it's very good, but it's quite Americanized at points, you know, kind of, you know, in terms of its production value and in terms of the, sound, the soundtrack's brilliant, by the way, because it's totally my thing, you know, kind of that scene in Manchester in the 90s again. And yes, yeah, so the music's brilliant. But, you know, David Beckham sort of says something like, you know, I only had one choice and that was just to go out on the football pitch and show them all, you know, who I was and, and just to do it, you know, sort of and fight back in the face of all the abuse I was getting. And he just went on an absolute mad one for a season. He just had a brilliant, brilliant football season after he got back from the from the World Cup. There's all sorts of other factors as well. I mean, Glenn Hoddle threw him under a bus. Sir Alex Ferguson took him under his wing and went, we'll look after you. And the Manchester United PR machine 
which small tangent is in absolute disarray at the moment, but at the time was just this absolute Leviathan headed up by Sir Alex Ferguson. Nothing got in, nothing got out. We're a family. There was like a kind of a Fort Knox style wall around Carrington, around Old Trafford. Like if David Beckham's done whatever he's done outside, that's fine. But the second he gets into Manchester United and puts his main United kit on, no one's getting anywhere near David Beckham or any of our other players. And it just, yeah, it became really, really interesting, didn't it? To see how he kind of almost fought back in a way that now wouldn't happen even if you wanted it to, because the way to fight back now is to go on social media. Yeah, exactly. Get that driving and get that thing moving, get that vehicle moving. Whereas his route through this was just to get his head down. And you can actually discuss and analyze the relative merits of doing that because actually back then, and I think Rio Ferdinand even says in the documentary, and he's been a big advocate for men's mental health because of everything that happened with his late wife and you know what he was going through with his children. He's married again now. But Rio Ferdinand even says in the documentary, like back then, even in the late 90s, early 2000s, men's mental health, mental health in general was not a thing. Mental he- health, honestly, I don't know whether this was a worldwide thing, but certainly in 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 Great Britain, it was get a grip. Yeah. Get a hold of yourself. You know, stiff up a lip. And that's on. how he felt. And he questions now. You can see in the documentary, he's like, you know, I was in a dark place. Should I have done other things? Maybe, but it was the only thing I knew. The only thing I knew how to do to get me through this was to go on a football pitch and play as well as I could. And you're and, right. I mean, you know. because of the power of the, the, the impact of the media in those mm. days, and it lasted. It wasn't like an overnight thing where he mm. was trolled and... It was persistent and mm. it was consistent for, for three years. Mm. He was the national bad boy. Mm. He'd cost the UK the, the World Cup. And even saying it sounds really stupid. Ridiculous. It? Yeah. It, it sounds stupid when you actually hear yourself saying, he cost us the World Cup. So what? <laughs> you know, it's it's not the be all and end all, but in those days, genuinely, yeah. it was and the media, the media knew back then, I mean, as well, it's, I think it's important that we kind of, and I'm not going to go one way or another here in terms of hounding the media or, you know, begging them up, like, you know, we're, we'd like to sort of be as impartial as we can be and just try and inform people on this. But, you know, the country was not in a great way. You know, it was the advent of new labour and kind of a sort of a semi-road to recovery in 98, you know, but Blair was still very new and people weren't really sure what to make of him. And, you know, ultimately sort of, you know, time told that, you know, I don't think anyone's still sure what to make of Tony Blair and that kind of era of British politics. That's not me making the podcast political. That's just when I was from my studies of politics at uni and at school. But, you know, the country was in a bit of a mess, you know, relative to previous years and relative to years after that. And so the big thing is, and I think the documentary did a really good job of, you know, sort of shining a very brief light on this. It was arguably... For our younger listeners who went absolutely mad at the World Cup, the two World Cups we've had in the last seven years, and obviously the, the Euros when we got to the final, particularly the Euros when we got to the final, the, the country men's went mad. Yeah, men's, men's World Cup, yeah. Well, but even even recently, you know, the, the, the Women's World Cup with, with obviously the, you know, the England ladies getting to the, to the World Cup recently, like the country now goes absolutely ballistic and you'd be forgiven for thinking that that's like been the case for the last 60, 70 years, that the country has just always come to a standstill if the England men in particular are playing a tournament football match. But actually, 98... 
like 96 and 98 were arguably the first tournaments where the modern you're loath to say example because there's some very poor behavior happens when these games go on right but the modern example of blokes in the streets shirts off the england tattoos everywhere that that was when it really started to come to the fore and it was because the country was the way it was and so they hung their hat on you know they hung their hopes on and their optimism on the england football team doing well and we had quite a good it team was know. was a golden light in quite a crappy time and they were called the golden generation as well which yeah. heaped even more pressure on all of the squad but beckham was seen as like this beacon of the golden generation of like he was the one you know he ended up going off and being a galactico with real madrid like he was the one who england fans went this is our you know he's our stalwart he's our shining light and so when he got sent off and england got knocked out of the world cup the media managed to make it not just about a man getting sent off for kicking another man and warranted or not getting sent off in a tournament football match that meant yeah. that England couldn't progress in a particular tournament. They made it about that. Then they made it about him being a wrong one. Then they managed to make it about him being the reason the country <laughs> was in this state of wallowing and grief. When in actual fact, there was so much more at play than just England getting knocked out of a tournament to be a bit worried about and to be a bit miserable about you. Know? you made to me, which I and you've alluded to, you kind of touched upon um a few minutes ago, was his reaction was to get out there and do what he does best mm. and just keep on and move on and work and not abandon his God-given trade. Mm. That's all he knew, and he knew he did it well, and he knew he was one of the world's best, and he loved it, and he loved Man United. And bless him, he didn't give up. In spite of a lot of adversity, in spite of everything that went wrong. When I was talking to you earlier about, you know, Sam, I'm saying, oh, you know, what about the, tre the treatment of Prince Harry and Meghan? One of the things you said to me was, yeah, and what choice did Harry take when he got, and probably arguably uh, not as harsh treatment from the media that, You'd argue. that, that Beckham got? You'd argue but that. Harry took the time out to, you know, to go off and, and do his own thing. He, he, he walked away. He walked away from that responsibility, yeah. whereas Beckham didn't. And it's interesting because I don't, I think for a while, I mean, although the Markles, as I now call them, the, although the Markles would say that they, the media hounded them out and there was some racist media and there's no doubt in my mind about that, but yeah. not as much as, as they talk about. I think the media at first was greatly loving of, of Harry and Meghan, but I think it was the way they tried to manipulate the media that has left them in the position that they're in right now which is equally fascinating because it could have gone another way it could have gone and I wonder if they'd taken a bit of a leaf out of Beckham's book and they just stayed and stayed true and plowed on and just essentially followed the royal family's moniker of what do they say? And um, they say never explain. Never complain. Never complain. And that's it. If they carried on like Beckham did. You don't know. Me. 
but there's we, an interesting not, question isn't there there's a, a place right now that's true i mean it's really good as well it's a really really good point you're making there which is that actually i'm, I'm glad we kind of got onto the harry and megan thing as well because again i'm, I'm going to kind of stress impartiality here as well i'm not saying for a second i mean i have my own views to a very great extent and actually i said before we went live that it was actually the thing i said and you pointed that out is the thing i said as i was watching the documentary to my wife alice i said and you think of you know some of the people who've dealt with a fraction of the abuse that David Beckham appears to be. And, and honestly, the documentary arguably doesn't make it plain enough, if I'm being really honest, because... No, you, no, you, it, was, it doesn't. It, you, it really you, doesn't. It was quite horrific. You watch it and you're like, wow, that looks really bad. But there is some footage that I've seen that's not in the documentary, which actually paints an even more horrific picture of just the level of abuse. I mean, he was driving around. He'd be, you know, he'd be driving around with his little one in the car and his car would be getting spat at. He was getting spat at in the road. He was getting threatened in the street when he was walking around Manchester. He wasn't able to go out in public over a football match, guys. Do you know what I mean, this is over a, is, you know. It's, yeah, and you didn't hear him complaining about not having any protection. No, he he, he just kind of, he he He, he was gone. the most hated man in the country. And he, he quite literally, you know, he says word for word at one point, he said, everyone in England hated me for three years. Everyone in England hated me. Everyone. That's not. And so when it comes to Harry and Meghan, like, you know, they had their, you know, and again, I'm going to be impartial with Harry and Meghan have their very strong supporters whom I respect, you know, and at times, like you say, when it comes to the racist media and the racism of the media, the racist media is, you know, I'm not going to use that as a brush to sweep. There was some racism in the media while Harry and Meghan were going through what they went through and that, and that's something we can acknowledge. So I'm not saying I support or don't support them, but Harry and Meghan had, you know, it was a divisive point. Harry and Meghan had supporters cannot stress enough and jackie's made this point as well this wasn't divisive listeners everyone hated him for what he did everybody one or two in the street when the tv cameras went out and they sort of did this thing where they kind of took zits probes and things when oh well yeah i think the treatment's getting a bit harsh and some commentators said that but 95 percent of the country went you've let your country down and i can't believe you've done this and you've let us all down and we hate you we absolutely hate you it was vivid um the question for me is and it's a question rather than a statement because the statement would be, oh, Beckham just got on with it. And the likes of Harry and Meghan, and to use a footballing analogy, something I see all over Twitter is there's a football player by the name of Harry Maguire, who plays for Manchester United, who gets a lot of stick quite regularly because he signed for Manchester United for £80 million. And he's been pretty rubbish, if we're being honest. He's been pretty rubbish since he signed for Man United. And now he's getting abuse from his own fans. Other fans are cheering whenever he plays because it's like, oh, yeah, we've got a chance here because he's rubbish, all this sort of stuff. The level of abuse they've received has been nowhere near, in my opinion, the level of abuse that Beckham and his wife, Victoria, received in the advent of, of that sending off in the World Cup. My question, though, as opposed to a statement, would be this. If Beckham had access to what the Markles, what Harry Maguire, what other sports people and celebrities have access to now, and just people, general members of the public, do you think he'd have kept calm, carried on, and head down and and I get don't know. I don't do you think, think so. he might have he might might have done similar things? I don't I, I personally it's don't think so related, isn't it but yeah. if you look at, and and a lot of our criticism in past podcasts about Harry and Meghan has been that they believe the sycophantic hangers-on and advisors in inverted commas that they're surrounded by because all those people do is blow wind or up their proverbials and tell them how wonderful they are and how right they are and this is I think a a lot of the reason why they've sort of relied on their coterie 
of advisors to push them towards mm. doing documentaries and to doing their uh, podcasts and to doing the book and all of which were totally advised and we can't say that if this all was happening with David Beckham now if if or if he had the opportunity to be surrounded by those sort of advisors who are advising on social media, advising on all of the different channels of mm. influence you could use. You can't say that he wouldn't necessarily have taken advantage of them. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because you're sort of looking on the one hand, it's good. The social media influence mm. is good because there is that leveler. There is the opportunity to bring another perspective and, and, a, and a bit of balance. On the other hand, it's a terrible thing to be put into the hands of people who are emotional and trying to make a point mm. about, look at me, understand me, understand everything that's going on wrong in mm. my life. And that's what the Markles did. Mm. So, you know, it's it's a really interesting, is social media really, really bad? Or is it really, really good? I, it, it's somewhere in the middle, isn't it? It's really interesting as well, isn't it? Just, just to finish this this podcast off is that actually, you know, Sanam, and thank you again for sending this request in because I've absolutely loved it. We've loved talking about this. But for me, if the question is when it comes to this podcast and the topic we're addressing is how has the media moved on? How has the media changed? And is it possible for the same thing that happened to David Beckham in the event in the 98 World Cup to happen now? And how are the responses different? For me, the answer is in the question, which is that actually, yes, it's obviously different because as you pointed out, social media now forms such a huge part of our media. Back then, media, as it was dictionary defined, bit of TV, bit of radio, but in print, red tops, etc., was king, right? Media sort of drove the agenda. Now, social media has to be included as part of the media landscape. You know, people get their news. We spoke to Hannah about this mm. um, from Hannah is Social. You know, people, so, a lot of people, particularly the younger generation, get their news from social media. Oh, get they their get news from, all their news from TikTok. You know, all their news is, is all by social media. And actually, I'd argue, and I'm going to say this with a tinge of, we have had a very recent example. It's a brilliant example you brought up, actually, which was Jane Sancho, Marcus Rashford, Bukayo Saka, Saka in particular, missing the penalties in the Euro final. And obviously that, for me, would be an example you would hang in a museum with the exhibit entitled, Is Social Media Bad for Society? Because they really went, yeah. they went in on them. But be thankful we didn't exist in a world where social media as it currently exists existed in 98. Be thankful that we... Because... The way it went down, and let's just say, let's hypothesize for a second that Beckham then didn't respond on social media as we speculated he might not do. Let's hypothesize that Beckham did exactly what he did in 98 through to 2001, which is that he just got his head down and continued to play football, and that's how he responded. Confusion we're coming to, isn't it, really? Exactly. Irrespective of what is being said about you, Mm. you know your truth. Mm. And if you act upon your truth mm. and you carry on it, 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 out of a knee-jerk reaction, mm. if you if you have a plan, and this is something we come back to in crisis all the time, mm. jumping onto social media is not going to help you change people's perceptions. No. But making Writing a book is not going to help you change people's perceptions. It might even worsen them. But doing what you do... Being good at what you do, even if you're criticised for it and carrying on and doing it to the best of your abilities, is what Beckham did. 
and I'm not saying for a second, and I don't want this to almost be the last clip we have in the podcast. I'm going to possibly here inadvertently make a comparison that I don't wish to make. But the advice you're always given if you're dealing with a bully mm. is to ignore them and to not give them reason give to enjoy else. continuing to do it. And I'm not saying for a second that the media are bullies. But in 98 through to 2000, the media bullied David Beckham and Victoria Beckham and his family. And Beckham publicly, certainly, privately, he was definitely not ignoring them. And he says as much in the documentary privately. It was really, really affecting him. But in terms of his public image and his public face out on the football pitch, it looked as if he was just ignoring all the abuse. He was ignoring the media. He was ignoring the you know sort of barrage of vitriol that he was faced with. And three years later, he picked out the top corner in the 91st minute against Greece, descending them to the World Cup. And the media didn't have a reason to bully him anymore because he united the country overnight. And there's also another point to make there, which is, you know, and we're part of this, human society, human nature is a fickle beast. Oh, yeah. I said in the moment, the second, and Al had never seen that goal and never sort of experienced that moment. I said, football fans in particular are extraordinarily fickle because the second that goal went top corner, top left-hand corner against Greece for us to draw that game and do exactly what we needed to get through to the World Cup in 2002 with our golden generation, the new hope. Every single fan in the country who had given him abuse after abuse for three years plus. It's not even footballers. Human beings are Mm. fickle. They forgot. You know, if you, if you just look at the, the travels of, of, of celebrity people, Mm through the media, even our queen, our dearly departed, God rest her soul, queen, mm. went through a long period of being really despised yeah. in, by our public because of her, her treatment, in inverted commas, of Diana. Now, again, she carried on, she did what she did, and she did it very well. And, you know, this is the interesting thing about media, isn't it? And the interesting thing about what we do. Everything is like the flavour of the month. Mm. And something that, that a very wise person said to me was, when you're in the middle of a crisis, this too shall pass. Mm. And it's something to remember when you're dealing with crisis. And it's something to remember when you're dealing with immediate media choices. When you're making a choice about how you respond or how you react, is to kind of say to yourself... This too shall pass. Yeah. It will. It will be gone. There will be something else that happens. There will be something else that yeah. that takes the media's interest, whether that be newspapers, broadcast, social media. There'll be something else coming. And while in a digital age, we are living in in, in there used to be the old fish and chip paper, which was made out of the red top newspapers. People it used was. to say, "Oh, it's it's tomorrow's fish and chip paper." Yeah. While in the digital world, there is no such thing as tomorrow's digital uh, fish and chip paper, it still becomes at the bottom of the searches. And it still will pass when it comes to immediate interest. So I think, you know, we have to be a little bit more sanguine about these things too. I agree. Yeah, I completely agree with you. That's a really, really good point to finish on. And and ultimately as well, I think we spoke about this before we, we went live. Her... PR team, his PR team, as a couple, their PR team got their strategy spot on, inadvertently or otherwise, <laughs> because they, yeah, well, this documentary <laughs> is great. Obviously, it's part of part of their PR kind of machine. Talking about Victoria and David here, and not the Markles. Yeah, 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 exactly. You're talking about Victoria <laughs> and David. 
but yeah, I mean the Beckhams as they, as they were as they were known obviously we're doing things above and beyond what a footballer in particular but you know because obviously she was a Spice Girl and that was kind of more a musician's bag you know going on you know Jonathan Ross going on Parkinson etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know for, footballers didn't go on talk shows so fair enough their PR machine worked very well when it came to them as a brand but when they were dealing with these crises they very much in my opinion I'd need to know more about this and again if you're someone who was near this situation at the time or have any knowledge of it come on the podcast love to talk to you about this they kind of adopted a this two shall pass kind of strategy and that might have been driven by Beckham himself where he was like look I, I just want to play football I don't want I don't want this to blow up well and the other thing is sorry I, I know we're I'm extending the pod yeah. a bit but the other thing I found really fascinating about that the way they handle things in the documentary is uh, and we haven't even talked about this this alleged affair with Rebecca Luz mm. and the reason I just suddenly remembered it is because of the way they played it in the documentary it was so well done mm. it was so well done because they never denied it and they left you hanging, I think, at the end of episode three, when David says, and then that happened. And then you're like, oh, I need to see what's happened, what I, you know, with, with yeah, the affair. Yeah. Then they come into the next thing, and they don't talk about whether it happened no. or not. They simply talked about the effect on them as a family, as individuals, and how they got through it. And it was genius television. It was genius PR so because good. they didn't go into the detail of it. They didn't deny it, but they gave you just enough. Just a flavour. Enough to yeah. say, oh, yeah, I now understand what it was like for them to go through that. And in a way, as a viewer, you didn't even go, they they never denied it. No, they, that's it. They never got into it. Did it happen? Did it not happen? Yeah. Is there going to be a part two? Is there going to be a Beckham two? You know, and then oh, I, I mean, just thought that was such an elegant way, yeah, brilliant of dealing with it. And that, you know, I thought that was just brilliant. They've, so. got, they've inadvertently got some brilliant PR here because, guys, go and watch it. It's four episodes; they're each an hour long, so it might seem like oh, that's four hours, it's a bit of a slog. It trust me, and I'm sure Jackie agrees with this. It does not drag one bit. Every minute, you're like, oh, there is so much great insight into you know, his time at Manchester United and that Sir Alex Ferguson machine and how much control he exercised over his players and and then the move to Real Madrid and they talk, it's the most I've ever heard any of them talk about the boot in the face and all this amazing stuff. I mean, his story is extraordinary, but go and watch it. And yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen, you know, what their story has left yeah. to unfold. You know, yeah, so it's, there's stuff yet to happen. You know what I mean, it's incredible. And, and you know, there's talk of him being part of a guitar takeover at Manchester United, all this sort of stuff. Incredible. Anyway, go and watch the brilliant documentary, the Beckham documentary on Netflix. We'll link various things across in the episode description. Thanks so much, listeners, for joining us on this most recent episode of The Rest of PR. A few T's and C's before we let you go. If you would like to get in touch with us, like Sanam did, obviously via Jackie through that channel, <laughs> but if you'd like to get in touch with us with any topic you'd like us to discuss, or if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, you can do so. Email us info at demosa.com or info at the rest is pr.com. We'll respond to both of those email addresses. And you can also go to both of those websites, Demozo for all things Demozo and the brilliant work we've been up to here at Demozo PR Agency. And also the rest is pr.com for all things the podcast. I'll be updating that in due course with the uh, latest episodes that we've been putting up on all major streaming platforms. You can also follow us on X at the rest is PR, capital T, capital R, capital I capital pr and you can also message jackie or i on linkedin as well because we'll respond to messages on that platform as well so loads of ways to get in touch with us 
will respond to everything. We're, we're getting really good at this now. I feel like, you know, we're, we're on a bit of a roll here. We've got brilliant guests coming up. It's been really, really good. And it's a pleasure to have you, as always. Jackie, same time next week. What do you reckon? Absolutely. Love to hear it. Thank you so much, listeners. For the time being, from Jackie and myself, have a lovely rest of your week. Take care of yourself. It's bye for now.